uh, I wanted to make it through Luke 21, which is what uh, Helen uh, just read. I wanted to make it through that before summer started because I had this grand plan uh, where a startup uh, with Luke 22 and you know, the plot on Jesus' life and uh, as this series that I really want to finish by Advent, but then I didn't get, even get to Luke 21. Uh, so I'm hoping now to, to, to finish it in time for uh, when school starts. Uh, Luke 21 is Luke's account of what's called the Olivet Discourse, uh, since he's preaching uh, he's near the Mount of Olives, as it said in the last verse there. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all include this teaching of Jesus. It's, uh, it's relatively lengthy, important, difficult, uh, kind of, of apocalyptic teaching. I'm actually going to take two weeks on this. Uh, one Today, uh, I'm actually going to continue kind of in the spirit of you asked for it. So this will be like the, the hinge sermon. So really kind of want to focus more on the nuts and bolts of interpreting this passage and how it relates to our questions and how we might think about this passage. How does it shape our thinking? And next week, I plan to look at how this passage gives us hope for the future as well as our purpose in, in the present. So this week, we're trying to apply this text to our heads, and next week, we'll focus on how it might apply to our hearts and hands if you'll let me steal some alliteration from the 4-H club, it was county fair this past week, so my days of goat showmanship just all came back to me, and I've got uh, my heads, my heads, my head, and, you know, the, well, ironically, it's clearer thinking, which I've, you know, I don't know, I, I pledged my head to clearer thinking at one point, but I don't know if I ever got there, but uh, especially as, as I've been looking at this passage uh, for for some time here, uh, it's not, not exactly easy to think clearly about um, Someone once said that trying to figure out the Bible's teaching on the end times is like playing golf. It's fun, it keeps you busy for several hours, but when it's all over, you just end up in the same place you started from. Um, I personally have found this to be the case, except for the part about golf being fun. Uh, whenever I try to dig into the Bible's teaching on Revelation or Daniel, you have Thessalonians in there too, and the Olivet Discourse here, I try to figure out how all this fits together. It's a fun little rabbit hole to dive into, but at the end, I feel like, you know, I still think what I thought before, which is, you know, Jesus is coming back, and that's pretty great, right? Uh, and I'll leave the details to him. <laughs> uh, other than that, uh, you know, as far as actually interpreting a text like today's, yeah, I do want to follow the same rules that I would use for any other passage of Scripture. They don't really change, and that is... You know, what I'm really trying to find out is how this applied to the people who first heard or read these words and, and let, also let the easy-to-understand passages guide your reading of the tough passages, understand the genre of writing, if it's a letter or a historical account, generally take it at face value, if it's poetry or what we call apocalypse, then we expect some figurative language, some metaphor, some symbolism, and by the way, you know, that doesn't mean if there's metaphor or symbolism that, oh, it just means whatever we want it to mean. No, there, there's still objective meaning, even if it's a metaphor. Uh, we go back to try to figure out how they would have understood this and what the author was intending to communicate. But what we don't do is look for some hidden code that somehow explains current events today but has no real meaning for the people that Jesus was talking to at the time or, you know, case of Revelation, the, the churches that he was writing to at the time. We need to start with, with that. So with all of that being said at the start, 
and with the caveat that, you know, uh, there are lots of different views on this from smart people. I'm going to do three things with the passage this week. I'm going to first give you some different ways that people approach the passage, and then I'm going to spend most of the time just kind of walking through it and, and sketching out what, what I think is going on uh, for whatever that's worth, and then after that I'll wrap it up with uh, some kind of uh, conclusion if we get that far. So <laughs> different views of, of this passage. Well, first of all, uh, just throw this out there too. You know, you know there are different views of the end times to begin with, different ways Christians understand events leading up to Christ's return. Um, it kind of boils down to three views. There's uh, premillennialism is the most common, and really the, the key to know about that is uh, it's, it's generally the view that the world is just going to keep getting worse and worse until Christ returns, you know, culminating in, in some a really intense period of, of tribulation and suffering. And within that camp, there's still some discussion of, you know, if is Christ going to take the world, you know, rapture, not take the world, but rapture the church, take us out of the world before that suffering or halfway through it or at the end of it. But generally, it's that perspective. The, the world keeps getting worse until Christ um, returns. The kind of opposite, at least in terms of, so that, that's premillennialism's, you could call it pessimistic. I don't know. There's really, they're not necessarily pessimists, but in, in terms of the world, they expect it to uh, not get better. Opposite would be post-millennialism. This is kind of through the preaching of the gospel and in Christian activity in the world. It'll eventually get so great that we do reach this millennial period, and then Christ will return after that. So they kind of expect the world to get better as the gospel goes forth or as Christians get involved in things. Uh, used to be really popular. Uh, a couple world wars kind of happened, and the optimism went away, and it's kind of making a, a comeback. And then you've got amillennialism, which is kind of in between. The world's going to stay as it has been, same as it ever was, until Christ returns. You'll have the gospel going forth, but also suffering and persecution just mixed together at the same time uh, until Christ returns. So different views uh, about this, and I'm obviously not in one sermon going to resolve all of that, just throwing that out there for your reference. Uh, and then there are different views, again, smart people holding to these different views about how we interpret the Olivet Discourse, the passage we're looking at today. Uh, the first view would say this is all, all in the past. Jesus is only talking about events that happened in the year A.D. 70, with the destruction of the temple and a massacre of Jerusalem's uh, population, and they would resist really making any application to the future from our perspective, the second coming of Christ. So that's, that's number one. It's all in the past. A second view would be it's all in the future, uh, from our point of view anyway, that Jesus is only talking about his second coming at the end of the church age. So all past, all future, Number three, just kind of swirl the two some way, mix them together. Uh, the, there are parts that are talking about the past, those events in A.D. 70 with the destruction of the temple, and then parts where Jesus switches gears and uh, begins discussing his second coming. And uh, you just look at different possible points where Jesus is changing or where the timeline progresses. And then a fourth view would be that essentially the whole passage is about both 
uh, what happened in A.D. 70 and Jesus coming. So he's, that he's kind of talking about them both at the same time in a certain sense. If that sounds a little weird, uh, remember that we would often preach from the Old Testament this way. Think about, for example, the Passover, Exodus 12. Moses is giving instructions to the Israelites as the angel of death is about to come with the final plague on the Egyptians, and they are supposed to slaughter a lamb, spread its blood on the top and sides of their door frames so that, that the angel would pass over them, uh, exclude them from the judgment. So one layer is the actual instructions and what the Israelites were supposed to do at the time, right, around 1450 B.C. There's another layer we could add on to that, the fact that Moses wrote this down for future generations to remember God's deliverance, right? So there, there's another layer of how that applies. But from a New Testament perspective, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ our Passover has been sacrificed for us. We as Christians understand Exodus 12 to be not just about what happened then, but also about the blood of Christ, the Lamb, right? About events of A.D. 33, when Christ was crucified for us. But there's more than that. We could even go beyond that and tie this to the final judgment at the end of the age when those covered by the blood of Christ are saved from the ultimate condemnation and delivered from their enemies. So it, it's not that different sections of Exodus 12 are talking about different parts of those events. It's more that that first Passover foreshadows the cross and the judgment. So that the passage is about those past events, but those events speak to future. Those events almost in and of themselves are prophetic of Christ and his first and second coming. So it may very well be that Luke 21 is about the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of Jerusalem that happened in 70 AD itself foreshadows the judgment and the tribulation around the second coming of Christ. I kind of lean toward that fourth view. Again, there's smart people that hold to each of those, and it's possible that, you know, tomorrow I might be persuaded. I might change my view. Hopefully I don't change my views by the time I get to the end of this sermon because uh, that would be awkward. But, but I, I think this fits with a general pattern of how prophecies work in, in Scripture. So I would say Jesus is generally speaking about the siege of Jerusalem, A.D. 70, but he starts using this apocalyptic kind of language that I would say invites his disciples, invites us included in that, to look beyond those events to uh, our ultimate hope in his second coming. So that's my general approach. Um, now let's dig into this a little bit. Uh, so he's, he's in Jerusalem, just to give context. Sometime after Palm Sunday, uh, during the last week of his pre-resurrection life, uh, if you remember Palm Sunday, he rode into town on a donkey. People are shouting for joy, but Jesus is weeping, and he's weeping because he's thinking of the destruction of Jerusalem that is going to come, so we know that's on his mind. Uh, once he gets into town, he goes to the temple, and he teaches at the temple. That's what we've seen uh, for the past uh, couple chapters, I believe. And there in the temple, he has multiple conflicts with various leaders in Jerusalem, so their rejection of him and the judgment that comes, again, that's all fresh in, in our minds. So in verse 5, we have some people talking about how nice the temple is, and adorned with noble stones and offerings. Those offerings, it's not talking about the sacrifices that are made, but 
these opulent donations of things like tapestries and, and gold plates on the doors and other decorations. So you know, Herod's temple was big, it was impressive, even by the standard of the, the wonders of the ancient world. So there they are at the temple. People are looking around, they're complimenting the architecture and the decor, and Jesus says, you know, you like this temple, do you? Yeah, it's going to burn. Uh, not one stone is going to be left on another. I don't seem to have control here. I don't know why. Yeah. All right. Yeah, just, just try to figure out where I am at any given moment. <laughs> we'll, we'll, be, we'll be all right. So, so yeah, uh, not one stone is going to be left on another. And they respond, uh, well, uh, that's terrifying. Uh, when, when exactly did you say this was going to happen, and um, how, how will we know, you know, so we can get out of here? I'm paraphrasing and taking an educated guess about their motives, but that's really what, why else would you want to know, right? Um, and just as an aside here, uh, in Matthew, uh, they ask three questions. Uh, he records a little bit more detail, the, the nature of their questioning. They ask, when will that happen, the thing with the temple? When will be the sign of Christ's coming? And when is the end of the age? Um, they're asking that all together uh, because they think it's going to happen at the same time. This, this brings out the kind of confusion that we've seen in Luke as well, that they thought all of this would happen all at once, that Jesus would sort of arrive in Jerusalem as king, judge his enemies, rule over his people, fulfill all the promises and all the prophecies, all at once during his first coming. And of course, we know that's not how it actually happens. Christ dies, rises again, ascends into heaven, and entrusts his people to carry on the mission and his authority, preaching the gospel until he returns. So they don't really know what they're asking. And Jesus doesn't exactly sort it out for them with charts and timelines, uh, but he does tell them what they need to know which will make sense when they need to know it. So as we look at Jesus' answer, it's clear to me that Jesus at least begins with the destruction of the temple. They're at the temple. His prophecy of its destruction is what started this whole conversation. That destruction happened in A.D. 70. In verse 20, he clearly has in mind the Roman siege of Jerusalem, you know, talking about the the Gentiles surrounding the, the city. So regarding the destruction of the temple and really of Jerusalem as they know it, Jesus says that you are going to hear a lot of doomsday prophecies. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, the time is at hand, do not go after them. So don't buy into all those doomsday prophecies that you hear. Don't let them freak you out because there's a lot that still has to happen first. You get to verses 10 and 11, and there are definitely some dark and frightening events that are going to happen. By the way, Matthew and Mark add on that these are just the beginnings of birth pangs, so those are not the end. But before the destruction of Jerusalem, in verse 12, oh, I think I've got it now, uh, they are going to have some intense persecution to face. They're going to lay hands on you, persecute you, deliver you up to synagogues and prisons, um, and some of them will, will be killed. So this persecution, it calls for perseverance, but it's an opportunity, uh, we see, to bear 
witness to Christ before those kings and governors. And what's more, the, the Holy Spirit is going to guide them and they know exactly what to say and no one's going to be able to refute their witness that the power of the word is going to go forth. It will be rough. You'll have family members betraying you. Some of you will be killed. But even through death, God will sustain you. Not a hair of your head will perish, and by your endurance you will gain your life. And thinking about what happened, think about the book of Acts, and there was some intense persecution, certainly before A.D. 70. Apostles were arrested and beaten for preaching the gospel. Stephen was stoned to death around A.D. 36. Uh, James, the brother of John, we read in Acts, was killed by Herod Agrippa, probably around A.D. 44. The Apostle Paul, almost certainly put to death just a few years before uh, A.D. 70, something like 67 or so. So Jesus is letting them know that the destruction of the temple is not their most pressing concern as the church. You've got other things you need to think about and prepare for that are going to happen long before the destruction of the temple. Be prepared to endure persecution. But, in verse 20, uh, to answer your question, essentially, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. When Rome comes marching on Jerusalem, then it's time to get, well, the getting's good, essentially. Uh, by that way, that word desolation uh, is, uh, in Matthew and Mark, uh, writing to more Jewish audiences, they use the phrase from Daniel, abomination of desolation. Um, go into the details of the history of that, that phrase. But what Luke is doing, writing to a Gentile audience, he kind of translates these for us to, to let us know um, what's... Uh, what those words mean. Essentially, you think about Bible translations, he gives us a little bit more of a thought-for-thought thought as opposed to a word-for-word word translation. I think there's a place for both of those uh, kind of Bible translations because there, there's a, both of those kinds of translations in, in the Gospels. Um, it's helpful to compare those if you want to help uh, understand some of the difficult phrases in Matthew and Mark. Read Luke's account. He, he kind of explains it for you in, in easier terms, but so when Rome comes marching to Jerusalem anyway, that's time to get out. And actually, early church historians tell us that that's what Christians did. They did, in fact, remember Christ's command. And when the Roman armies came, they took the first opportunity to flee Jerusalem and survived. And I guess I should probably, at this point, go to places any to say a little bit more about what happened in the year A.D. 70. Uh, I've been talking about this destruction of Jerusalem. So... This came after years of Jewish rebellion against Rome. Remember Judea, Jerusalem, it's all under Roman authority. Lots of people don't like that, and so there have been some, some uprisings and things. And uh, the Roman armies under a general named Titus uh, finally in A.D. 70 surround Jerusalem, laid siege to it so no one can get out and no food or supplies can get in. And there are just horrible horrible stories about what people did to try to survive that, including cannibalism. Uh, those who tried to escape were caught, and the Roman armies would crucify them outside the city to a tune as many as 500 in a single day. Uh, and that, 
that lasted over five months, or almost five months, rather. And when the Romans finally do break through the walls, that the temple does end up burned and destroyed, just as Jesus said. 1.1 million people, historians say, were slaughtered, and another 100,000 sold into slavery. Just huge loss of life in a short amount of time. So as Jesus says, these are the days of vengeance and great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among the nations. Uh, and that is exactly what, what happened. Um, so, um, and by the way, uh, you know, if you're thinking about this passage in Matthew and Mark, you know, they talk about great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now and no, never will be, where Luke kind of uses different languages. You're just in that same, at that same point here in verse 23, great distress upon the earth and wrath against this, his people. You know, Matthew and Mark's language is probably what we call hyperbole. The Old Testament often talks this way. Uh, whether it's in a positive sense, you know, Josiah and Hezekiah were both the best kings ever. There never was a king like him, not even since then, but, well, they can't both be the, literally the best ever, right? So it's simply a, a Hebrew way of speaking. Again, another example of Luke sort of translating for us, um, for a Gentile audience. Well, anyway, back to Luke. Uh, at the end of verse 24, uh, this is where I think you really start to get hints of something bigger here as he talks about the times of the Gentiles. There's debate about what the times of the Gentiles means. Is it simply the Roman conquest of Jerusalem or are we to think about the entire church age when the gospel is preached among the Gentiles? That's certainly a big uh, concern for Luke is uh, this teaching that the gospel goes forth to the Gentiles. Well, then in verses uh, 25 through 28, we have a lot of clearly apocalyptic uh, language with signs in the sky and distress on the earth and fainting and foreboding of what is coming on the world. The powers of the heavens will be shaken and they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. There are references to the book of Daniel here. So the meaning of this is definitely debated. Is this the second coming of Christ to judge the entire world? Others would say it is simply a coming of Christ in, in his judgment of Jerusalem or even in some kind of complex way that it's not talking about his coming to earth but the, his coming to the Father as evidence that Christ is on the throne at the right hand of the Father ruling. There are respectable ideas or arguments for the idea that this is still just about A.D. 70 but I, I just can't, I can't buy the idea that we're only meant to apply this to what happened uh, a couple thousand years ago. They will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud. You might convince me that there's still some first, sec uh, first century application to that, but to say that Luke and Jesus didn't want us to connect that with his second coming uh, just doesn't make any sense to me, right? Um, Son of Man coming on a cloud, they will see. And then in verse 28, um, really kills it for me, you know, when it comes to the destruction of Jerusalem, Jesus' message was clearly, you need to get out, right? You need to run. Do something to escape this or you will be, you will be killed too. But then 
when we're thinking about the Son of Man appearing on a cloud, the message is different. It's straighten up and raise up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. You know, in one case, it was, if you don't get out, this is your destruction too. In the other case, it's you're about to be delivered from this fallen world. So let me back up a little bit. There's something that happens in prophecy and scripture. I think uh, Old Testament examples of this too, where the message clearly starts out talking about whatever was going on at the time, but then as you read along, by the time you get further along in the passage, by the time you get to the end, you think, this has gotten bigger than where it started. So, for example, Isaiah 7 talks about a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, call his name Emmanuel, right? And at the time, Isaiah explicitly says this child is a sign that God will deliver the kingdom of Judah from Syrian and Israelite invaders, and the child himself is born in chapter 8. He's Isaiah's own son, whose name is Meir Shalal Hashbaz, one of the less common baby names that year. But in chapter 9, you start reading, For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And we're not talking about Isaiah's boy anymore, are we? It has escalated into something even bigger. That child who was born at that time as a sign of deliverance was also foreshadowing another child who would be born to us as an even greater deliverance. So it's as if prophecies start off discussing ancient world events, but as you read on, this veil kind of lifts gradually, and you see how those events point to a much bigger conflict and a much bigger story. That's what the word apocalypse actually means, by the way. It doesn't mean destruction. It doesn't mean end of the world. It means an unveiling, an uncovering, showing us these bigger realities that are behind these everyday events. And so I think something similar may be happening in Luke 21. Jesus hasn't laid this out with bullet points. He's not saying, first there's persecution, then there's destruction of Jerusalem, and then there's my return. I, I, it almost feels like, and this is what makes it hard to interpret, that it almost feels like he's talking about just one big thing, talking about it like it's all one event. But I think that's also partly the key, because in a sense... It is one big thing. It's the hostility between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent going back to Genesis 3. Age-old conflict uh, between good and evil, between the enemies of God and followers of God. That hostility, it's right there in the persecution of the first century Christians, still here in the persecution of 21st century Christians. The hostility was there in Jerusalem's rejection and crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And we see God's response and the judgment that he's talking about that's coming through the Roman armies. So that, that hostility is, is still there, whether uh, persecution or... And th these are all just symptoms of a much larger hostility which continues until Christ returns. And that's the struggle that we are to focus on. Our battle as Christians is not against flesh and blood. It's a spiritual warfare. It's a conflict that Christ has already won by his death and resurrection. He's dis disarmed, defeated, 
the devil, um, even though the final resolution and final judgment on that enemy is yet to come. So I guess to sum all of that up, I guess, Jesus, I think, is talking about the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, but he's also lifting the veil and encouraging his followers, including us, to keep our ultimate hope fixed on his return. Not that they were to ignore current events or the signs of the time. They needed to know when it was time to stand firm and endure persecution and when it was time to run for the hills, right? That requires some wisdom and paying attention to the words that he has spoken. But to tie this in with Luke's main purpose, which was to give certainty to his readers who are reading this this book uh, of the things that they were taught, uh, believers in all ages need to see that whatever trials and whatever conflicts they face, those are not a disruption of God's purposes, but an expected part of life in this fallen world. The world hated Christ, the world hates Christ's followers, and that is nothing new. Certainly should be no distraction for the command of Christ to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us, to be his witnesses in the earth. Well, I need to finish my walkthrough of the text. Uh, Jesus concludes with two bits of, of application here, uh, one in 29 through 33. Um, and I've already kind of mentioned this. Uh, the, the people Jesus is talking to, um, this generation uh, will not pass away until all these things have taken place. And that, that really makes me think that he's talking still really foremost in his mind with these things is the destruction of J Jerusalem. Um, but they need to keep an eye out for the signs that he has mentioned. That's the point with the fig tree. Like a fig tree, you see leaves come on the trees, you know warm weather is coming. When you see these things that I'm talking about, that's when you know uh, that it's time and you need to take the action that I told you to take and, and get out of here. Uh, once again, though, heightened language uh, points us to think beyond that. The kingdom of God is near. This is where it... it frankly, is quite difficult to, to interpret the text. Uh, if it's simply talking about A.D. 70, the fall of Jerusalem, it's not obvious how the kingdom of God came nearer through that. Uh, but if it's about Christ's coming, it's not exactly clear what the signs are that we're, we're talking about. Jesus already said, you know, don't get freaked out when you hear about the wars and, and tumults and things. The definitive sign of the Son of Man's coming seems to be the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory, you know, the sign of Christ's return is Christ re returning. Um, so it is difficult. I'm just going to acknowledge that it's difficult here. And verse 34 to 36, uh, they warn us against getting so wrapped up in cares and concerns and sins of this world, drunkenness and dissipation, that we're not staying awake and alert, we're not watchful and prayerful. Um, as he calls us to be, again, uh, this basic principle uh, could apply to both Christians living in the time up to the fall of Jerusalem. They need to stay alert and pray. Uh, applies to us still today. We need to stay alert and pray. Whatever generation will be on the earth uh, in the days before Christ's second coming, we'll need to stay alert and watchful in prayer. Though the verse 35 uh, says that this is coming upon all who dwell upon the face of the earth certainly makes us think of Christ's second coming. But just to 
boil it down here, what I really want us to notice uh, is the warning uh, and the command here, and that's this, that Christ is warning us against getting lost in immorality and worldliness that dulls our senses, puts us to sleep, and we fail to heed his command to stay alert and to stay persistent in prayer. I think that's the, the ultimate point. And that brings me to the, the application that I want to wrap up with. It's to remember, and this is, again, this is an application of how we think about this passage. And it is a difficult passage. And I, I keep tweaking and refining my understanding as I prepared for this, even up to the end. And I probably still will. If theologians and Bible scholars look at the Olivet Discourse and say things like, it's hard to decide which interpretation is right. But as we look at these passages and as we think about the doctrine of Christ's coming, the point Jesus is making, though, is not for us to obsess over trying to have the exact correct timeline to figure this out. Not Certainly not for us to obsess over current events and try to figure out how they might fit into different Bible prophecies and symbols, whether the Flying scorpions are attack helicopters, or whether the mark of the beast is a COVID vaccine, or which presidential candidate is the Antichrist, and which one's the Messiah, and how many more blood moons are going to come before the Great Tribulation, and whether we'll make holes in the ceiling if we're indoors when we get raptured, and that sort of thing. Yeah, or even more serious speculations and questions people might have. I, I think the irony is that this kind of end times obsession can become a distraction from our ultimate hope for the future and the ultimate mission of the church that we're called to do in light of Christ's coming. How many times, how many parables that the master went away and left servants with work to do and is he going to find them at that work when he returns? If we're worried about the challenges of our present day, the application is really the same in every age. Pray for strength to escape the coming judgment and to stand before the Son of Man. So as we think about the return of Christ and whatever events may surround his return, make sure that Christ is at the center of your thinking. Uh, rather than obsessing in fear over where the Antichrist might come from, look forward with joy to the coming of the actual Christ. Keep that at the center of your theology, that Christ is returning to bring his kingdom. Instead of devoting ourselves to charts and timelines, instead of looking for clues and current events and signs in the skies, devote ourselves to prayer. Devote ourselves to the kind of living that he's called us to. And devote ourselves to the gospel of Christ, to applying it in our own hearts and speaking it to the world around us, devoting ourselves to loving Christ and loving our neighbor and the mission that he has called us to do. Make that the center of our thinking. And that's all I have to say about that. Let's pray. Uh, Father, your word is wonderful and glorious. And there are things that you have revealed to us that we wrestle and struggle to understand. Like the first followers who didn't understand, couldn't clearly see how Christ was going to bring redemption in that first coming, thinking that he would bring it all at once in 
victory, not understanding that he brought us redemption through what looked like defeat at the cross. So we too, uh, looking ahead and looking forward with hope and rejoicing to the second coming of Christ and his glorious return, um, we may be in the same boat and uh, maybe the questions that we're asking are, are off. Do we even know what questions to ask? Um, your plan in, in every age has always been more than we could have expected, and your grace has shown itself to be more than we deserve. Uh, Lord, as we read passages like this in your word that speak to us of uh, the second coming and judgments and tribulations and, and persecutions, um, help us to see these things uh, rightly. Help us in our hearts and in our minds to, to understand to understand that this world is difficult and that we do need to cling to you and pray for strength because not just whatever is coming, but whatever is here now, our lives now, we need the strength that only you can give. And so while life is difficult and what comes our way may be difficult and require our perseverance, yet we also know that you are with us and we also read those promises that not a hair on our heads will be lost, that you are working through it all, that you hold on to us to the end, that you are faithful to supply that strength which we lack as you have supplied us with everything that we lack. Supplied us with, above all, the righteousness that we lack so that we can stand before the Son of Man in confidence, not because of anything that we have done, but only because of his grace and his righteousness, dressed in his righteousness alone. And so, uh, Father, I would simply ask that you would give us a sense of peace and joy and hope, knowing that whatever the course of history is and whatever is dim to our eyes is not dim to you. You know it all. You are at work through all of it for our good and for your glory. Help us to cling to this truth, we ask in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.